Our sermon title, obviously, this morning is Be Ready. We're going to be looking in Matthew chapter 24, uh, and we're going to be looking at verses 32 to 51. Honey, honey, wake up. We have to go to the hospital. It's time. Labor pains. Contractions are what the medical profession refers to them as. Jesus refers to them as birth pangs in the Bible. Whatever you want to call them, they are a signal. There is a bun in the oven, and that is the timer going off. That bun's about to come out of the oven. Karen and Steve, not their real names, to protect their identities from ending up in their dad's sermon illustration. Karen and Steve are enjoying marriage, building a home, and a life together as they plan for their future. One day, Karen started noticing uh, that she seemed to be nauseous more often than usual. Normally appealing smells were now turning her stomach. And when that time of the month came and she missed it, she became suspicious. A visit to the doctors confirmed what she thought. She was expecting a baby. The first months were rough. There were a number of changes and adjustments. After the first trimester, things settled somewhat into a routine. The baby was growing, and as a result, so was Karen. Um, At times, she was uncomfortable, but she was mostly still able to do what she normally did. In the last trimester, however, life became increasingly uncomfortable. She was often tired. Her back and her feet hurt. And everything just seemed to be more difficult. And one night, as she lay in bed, listening to her husband sleeping peacefully beside her, she was gripped by a strong cramp, accompanied by a gush of warm fluid. The time had come. Thankfully, they had had some good birth coaching beforehand. The bag was packed for her stay at the hospital. Karen knew what to expect. Steve knew what his jobs were. And they were ready. The baby's arrival, long expected, was now imminent. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 8, Jesus compared the coming events to birth pangs. They were to be the signal that his second coming, long expected, would be imminent. Turn in your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 24, and we're going to start reading at verse 32. I'm going to ask you to stand as we read. Um, I've, I've seen this practice, and it, and it touched me. I, I, was, I was kind of uh, pleased with it. It's a recognition that we're not just reading any book, but this is God's word, and, uh, and it's important. From verse 32, from the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man." For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the son of man. 
Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master's delayed, and he begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And in an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites in that place. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, as we study this passage today, I pray you would give me wisdom and clarity to communicate the truths and the instructions within it. Ask you today, I ask you today to prepare our hearts to receive this from God's word, to receive it from the mouth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and I ask you to give us the courage to carry it out faithfully until he comes again, which we believe is soon. Amen. Please be seated. I'm going to ask you as we go through this to ask yourself a question. I'm not going to show, ask for a show of hands or anything like that. I just want you to ask yourself honestly, do I really believe this? Do I really believe this, what we're talking about today? We're going to study the passage today under a few headings, but I want to just kind of give you a, a, a big idea uh, concept as we begin this. We want to live as if Jesus is coming back today, but we want to plan as if he's not coming back for a hundred years. Live as if Jesus is coming back today, but plan as if he's not coming back for a hundred years. That's our basic idea for today. We're going to study the passage, as I mentioned, under three headings. And the first one is this. We want to... Oops. There we are. Be aware. We want to see the signs. This is verses 32 to 35. Anyone here ever done some birding? Maybe you don't want to admit that you have. (laughs) That's okay. I have. Uh, Not into it at all at first. And then I had a friend of mine, um, a teacher mentor at an outdoor education center who had recently become a believer. And, uh, and he introduced me to birding in Ontario. And, uh, Avid birders have bird, uh, bird books with checklists of the hundreds of species of birds that exist. Uh, some, some of those birders may travel to distant parts of the world to log a rare species. Uh, local birders, for the most part, will try to complete their checklist of species by visiting certain locations at specified times of the year for optimal results. Here in Ontario, for example, um, the birds that are migrating north for the most part, must migrate across Lake Ontario. It's a long stretch without any place to land. And so there tend to be these funneling points. Maybe you've heard of a place called Point Pelee. Point Pelee is a point of land that sticks way south into the lake. 
And so it makes for a short hop for a bird to come across. And so bird species that are migrating north tend to funnel there. And it's a great place in the springtime for birders. Now, of course, birds migrate north in the summer, but they migrate south in the winter. Um, so you could do that at either one of those two seasons, but spring is often prime time. Anyone want to hazard a guess why? Why spring might be better in fall? Sorry? Uh, could be. Why is spring better than fall for birding? Yeah? Okay. Which keeps them in one spot, right? Springtime, no leaves. Right? As the weather's warming up, the birds are signaled that it's migration time and they head north. But there's no leaves on the trees yet. So being able to see them clearly, unobstructedly, happens better in the springtime than in the fall. Now that window of time is very limited. The same warm weather that starts the bird migration also causes the buds to begin to open. And in about two weeks, the leaves are fully open, making bird watching and identification much more difficult. Jesus said to his disciples, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. The window is small. The analogies are all communicating the same message. When the trees begin to bud, the time is short and summer is near. When the birth pangs begin, the time is short and the baby's arrival is near. When you see the signs that we've been talking about here in chapter 24 over the last several weeks, the time is short and Jesus' second coming is near. But to see the signs, you have to be aware. Now, for several years, I have considered taking the trailer and heading down to Point Pelee myself or some such location now that I'm retired and actually do some bird watching. Get to hit some of those prime times where normally I would have been at work. But life is busy. There's lots of things that need to be done. And each year, I miss the signs. Before I know it, that window has passed by and it's too late. Maybe you noticed this year how quickly summer came on. All of a sudden, it was warm. All of a sudden, the leaves were popping out. And it's, they're already out now. Brothers and sisters, we are in such danger of exactly the same thing. We get comfortable. We get complacent. We get caught up in the day-to-day -day busyness of life, life here on earth. The physical life, the one we see with our physical eyes and detect with our physical senses. And we can easily miss the signs that Jesus' return is imminent. Are we seeing false Christs and false leaders in the church preaching a different gospel, leading people astray? Yes? No? Yeah? How about wars, famines? earthquakes. When I was 10 years old, we lived in Turkey for half a year. While we were there, we experienced an earthquake that measured 5.4 on the Richter scale. It was international news. Today, 5.4 seems run-of-the-mill. Yesterday alone, yesterday alone, there were 21 earthquakes in Japan. 21 yesterday the largest of which was 5.1. Do you hear about that in the news? 
There was a 5.2 earthquake in Tokyo on Thursday, a 6.3 a week ago. Did you hear about any of those? Yeah. Do you remember the devastating tsunami that hit Japan in 2011? I don't know about you, but I was like watching the videos of these waves rolling in, and they didn't really look like a whole lot far out. And then all of a sudden they came in, and then you just saw the volume of water that was going over walls and wiping, like cars were washing down the streets. Anybody remember those? Yeah. It was caused by an undersea earthquake. The Toyota plants were severely damaged there. Parts were hard to get for just repairs on our vehicles. Even more concerning, though, was the damage to nuclear power plants. That was their greatest fear. That earthquake measured 9.1. In February of this year, another devastating earthquake hit Turkey, 7.8 on the Richter scale. Maybe you saw the damage caused there, like whole, call them subdivisions, if you will, apartment buildings completely flattened, the rubble everywhere. How about out-of-control wildfires in the last few years? Doesn't it seem like every single summer we hear about another place? It's California. It's now this year it's Alberta, right? Alberta is burning. Wildfires going on there. Uh, two years ago, June 29th, 2021, I, I have a number of cousins that live out in BC. And they were posting on, on Facebook the picture of the inside sort of temperature gauge in their car for what was going on outside. And it was hitting 45, 46 degrees Celsius in Lytton, B.C. So that's in our country. In Lytton, B.C., they recorded a record temperature of 50 degrees Celsius. I can't even get my head wrapped around that. Air conditioners just say, yeah, I'm done All right, with 50 and the entire town was subsequently burnt to the ground in a wildfire the next day. That's going on in Canada. That's not in some third world country somewhere. In verse 12 of chapter 24, Jesus said, Because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Is lawlessness increasing, church family? If you look around, if you read the news, if you just interact with people, do you notice less resistance towards lawlessness. When you look at our schools, at our health care, at our government, when you drive along the 401, do you see evidence of a society governed by an attitude of doing what's right or doing what you want? Which one is it? Generally speaking, is our culture marked by love, real, genuine, self-sacrificing love? What about within the church? Is this an accurate description of what we are seeing around us? This is what Jesus is talking about already back in Matthew 24 in the first century. It's what we're seeing in our world. Be aware. Are you seeing the signs? That's the first thing he says. Next, Jesus tells his disciples, be ready. Don't be caught by surprise. Jesus says to his disciples, As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware. Until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Were there signs with 
with Noah's time? Were there any signs there, any warnings? What about Noah building this ark? Like, I just got to ask you, imagine the guy down the street from you starts to build an ark in his driveway, right? I'm sure that somebody has put together a rather humorous video on this, right? But here's Noah, and he is hard at work in his driveway building this ark. People are going like, dude, what are you doing? I'm building an ark. Uh, Yeah, why? Well, because God told me to. Buddy, the nearest ocean is like miles away. You don't have a trailer to put this on to get it to that body of water. What are you doing? Yeah, it's, well, it's going to rain. Do you know what? It hadn't rained yet. That's something we don't necessarily pick up on, but for, for us, we're so used to rain, even heavy rains and seeing stuff on the internet, it hadn't rained yet. Right? And they were mocking him. Do you know how long it, anybody know how long it took him to build that ark? What's that? 120 years. Okay, were there any signs that something was coming? That's 120 years worth of watching some guy building this massive big boat. And it wasn't just like a 16-foot bow rider sitting on your driveway. This thing was massive because all the animals had to get on this thing. And he and his family had to get on it, and they had to live on it for a period of time. So food needed to be stored on this thing as well. The, the Bible uh, gives you some pretty accurate descriptions. I've done it as a math activity with my grade 11s. Uh, yes, even in the public board. Um, yeah, that was interesting. I had some fun with that. But anyway, talks about the dimensions of this thing, right? 300 cubits. A cubit is the distance from your elbow to the tip of your middle finger. So it's about a foot and a half. So 300 cubits is about 450 feet. That's a big boat, It was probably like a giant shoebox type shape. It didn't have to be like streamlined. It wasn't going to have a motor on it that had to go anywhere fast. It just had to stay afloat and be stable. That's what it needed to do. Anybody remember how long they were in that boat? Yep. That's what we often think of, right? That's not actually correct. 40 days and 40 nights is how long it rained. And then they were in it for another 150 days. So at 30 days per month, that's five months on top of the 40 days and 40 nights of rain. So they were in that thing for half a year. So you got all these animals in there. You've got to have the food to store for those animals for that time and food for Noah and his family for a half a year's time at least, if not longer. Because once that thing landed on so-called dry land, like it would have been, I think, a little muddy, but they're on finally on land. It's not like the water washes away after six months, and oh, look, there's grapes, right? Like it's going to take some time for things to grow again. So it's not unreasonable to expect that they had to store food for probably about a year's time. So it had to be a significant size, this boat. This is the same warning that Jesus just gave in those previous verses about the fig tree. He's saying, do not be unaware. They were unaware. Don't you be unaware. He was busy doing this stuff. The signs were right there. 120 years he was building the boat, and they were clueless. No, sorry, that's not true. They were ignoring it. 
They weren't clueless. You couldn't help but see the thing. They were ignoring the signs. That warning goes to us and to our generation. Be aware. He continues to tell them that two men or two women will be carrying out the regular, everyday routines. They'll be indistinguishable, those people. You won't really be able to tell them apart, but one will be taken and one will be left. Now, the verbs for taken in this portion are interesting because they're a little bit different from the previous portion. The idea could be that one is taken away for judgment and one is left behind, right? If you think about World War II and the Nazis taking Jews and other people left behind, you are thinking of the idea of being taken for judgment, some kind of punishment. But actually, and that's the kind of idea that's given when uh, Jesus talks about Noah. He says, when the floods came and swept them all away or took them all away. That's the idea for that verb. Um, While in the meantime, in verse 39, Noah's family enjoyed the safety of the ark. But the verb for taken here is actually one that means taken away to safety so that the other one is left for judgment. Stay awake, says Jesus. Be aware. Don't Be oblivious to the signs. Then he goes on to describe how the attitude of being aware results in action. Attitudes should drive our actions. He describes a homeowner who is aware of the impending break-in and he acts. He stays awake. He's on guard. He's alert and ready to prevent that break-in from happening. In verse 44, take a look there, please. In verse 44... Jesus says to his disciples, therefore you also must be what? Ready. Be ready. Ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Don't be caught by surprise, says Jesus to his disciples. Be ready at a moment's notice. In Mission Impossible 3, Ethan Hunt is in the midst of celebrating his engagement to Julia They are literally in the middle of the engagement party. All the guests are there when he gets a call. Without delay, he goes to meet his handler, who informs him that he's needed for a rescue mission. As a secret agent, he has to be ready instantly to be deployed. He doesn't start training then. He doesn't go and pack his bag. No, he's been doing the training all along. And his bag is packed and ready to go. That should describe us, brothers and sisters. We should be training regularly. We need to be studying the word of God on our own. Be here when we preach it and when we break it down. But study it on your own as well. And then if you're confused about stuff, ask questions. Spend time in prayer. We need to discipline ourselves to walk in the spirit. And our bags should be packed, so to speak. We should know how we are to live, what's coming down the pipes, and what's expected of us by the Lord in response. The difference between us and Ethan Hunt, besides the fact that that's a movie and this is real, is that we're not hiding our secret life. We don't want to fly under the radar. We want as many people to be ready with us as possible. Do we not? Take a moment just now. I want you to think. If the Lord came today, 
And it's possible. It is possible that the Lord could return right now. If he came today, who do you love that would be left behind? Who do you love that would see judgment? The door would be closed on any opportunity for them. And I don't say that to guilt you, right? People are responsible for their own decisions. And it is quite possible that you have been faithfully sharing the gospel with people you love and they reject it. They're not rejecting you, of course. They're rejecting the Savior. But it hurts just as much. I watched my father-in-law reject God time and again when we shared clearly with him. You know where he was? He was in a nursing home dying in a bed. And it broke my heart because I wanted so much for him to see his sin. And do you know what? When he was a young man, do you know what he said? He said, I'll just wait till I'm older and then I'll make things right with God. Do you hear the pride in that? I think pride has to be the most dangerous of sins because it's pride that leads to all the other kinds of sins. There is a hardness that comes with pride, a closedness that comes with pride. That he could stand there and he could say, I will, I will, I will make things right with God. No, you can't. God's word is clear that we don't make things right with God. God makes things right and then offers it to us. Is there anyone that would be left behind because you haven't spoken to them? Think about that person. Think about those persons, whoever they might be. I pray that it would drive you to desire to share the truth of the gospel with those people because Christ could return at any moment. I know it's probably like me. It's probably not your first time hearing that. And that's why I asked you at the beginning, do you really believe it? Like you hear it and you nod and you're like probably inside, amen, Christ is returning soon, could be any minute. But our actions are driven by what we believe. And I wonder, do our actions, do my actions say something different about what I believe than what my words say? We want people to wake up to the danger, the eternal danger they are facing and teach them how to be ready. We, we have, right? We have that ministry. Paul calls it the ministry of reconciliation. God has given us all the information necessary to communicate to the lost of how they can be reconciled to God. How they can be ready when Jesus comes again. We need to be so careful that God's not giving us this gift of, of information, this gift of grace that we talked about this morning. And we're kind of sticking it in our back pocket and carrying on about our business and saying, you know what, I'll, uh, I, I, I will, I'll just, I'll, I'll get to it later. We can't afford to live like there's plenty of time and we can get ready later ourselves. We need to be ready now so we don't get caught by surprise. And we need to do what we can 
to communicate the urgency of that to others. All right, so we are instructed to be aware, check, and be ready, check. What do we do in the meantime while we wait for his return? There we go. Is that how we get ready? Is that what we do? Humorous, that was my intent. But the reality is that there have been large groups of people that have taken this kind of approach. They have sold everything and they've moved to these little communes and sat on a hill and said, we are ready, man. We are waiting for Jesus to come back. Do they really believe that Jesus is coming back? Amen, they do. Like, genuinely, you don't walk out and sell your house and quit your job and grab all your stuff and your family and everything and head off to some place if you don't honestly believe that Jesus is coming back. But that is not the response. I know that's kind of obvious. But to sit back now and say, okay, we're ready. We're just waiting for heaven. That's not why we were saved. We've got things to do. Jesus instructs his disciples as to what they should be doing right up to the last minute. And that's the last portion. It is be faithful. Be faithful. Carry out your assigned tasks. Here's what that looks like. Verse 45 to 47, Jesus says, Who then is the faithful and wise servant? How many people would want to say, me, I want to be that? I, I, I know I, I mess up sometimes, but I really want to. I want to be that faithful and wise servant. Right? I'm praying your heart is there. So then let's pay close attention to what he says. Whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I, I don't really care if he sets me over all his possessions. But I do care that he would come back and he would see me at work doing what he's called me to do. I don't know about you, but there's that, there's that verse that says that the master will return and say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Do you want that? Do you want to hear Jesus say that to you? I know I do. I desperately want him just to be pleased with what I've done in his name and in his power. Jesus uses a parable here. It's a very short one, but a parable to teach his disciples what his expectation as king is for them. Let's not forget that, right? Jesus is the Messiah King. This is the king speaking to his subjects. In those days, when a king had to go away for whatever reason, he chose a what? Anybody know? A steward, yes. In fact, you will hear the name Stuart, which is often a sort of a, a torqued rendering of that word steward. A steward is a man, typically one trustworthy and faithful to the king, who is chosen by the king to rule in his absence until the king returns. In the meantime, the steward held all the authority delegated to him by the king. 
This is precisely what Jesus is describing in this brief parable. As stewards of the king, that's us, left here until the king returns, we as his faithful followers are expected to carry out our responsibilities, our assigned tasks with zeal right up until his return. In fact, his return should essentially interrupt us in the midst of our tasks. We will be blessed when he finds us doing exactly that. Well, what tasks has he assigned us that we should be diligently doing? Here's the first one. And these are not going to be, like, this is not rocket science here. This is not going to be anything that's unfamiliar, right? Number one, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, Matthew 22, 37. That's the first thing. Our lives should be characterized by loving God with everything we've got. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew 22, 39. What else has he commanded us to do? We did it this morning. Remember him. Do this in remembrance of me. Communion. Participating in that. In John 15, verse 12, he says, love one another as I have loved you. That's a a new commandment. It says so. It's an imperative. We know the reality that, that some of us find each other easier to love than others. Some are easier to love. Some maybe not so. Sometimes it's a personality thing. I get that. But love isn't feelings, right? Jesus has reinforced that again and again. Love is action. Love one another. Do it. Choose it. Be intentional about it. And then he says in Matthew 28, make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. There's just a few. I'm sure probably some of you could think of one or two others that we could add to the list as well get into Hebrews, and we could talk about, you know, not neglecting to gather together, right? But this gives us a pretty good list to start from, to make part of our everyday behaviors and attitudes and actions. (laughs) These are the tasks he should find us diligently doing when he returns, and we should remember that he's given us his authority to carry out these tasks, A steward, even though he was a servant, was not someone to be trifled with when he was carrying out his responsibilities. The steward actually had power over your life. He didn't mess with this guy. He had some authority. Jesus has given us his authority. We've already talked about that, right, in Matthew 28, where he said, all authority has been given to me, therefore go and do these things. It was on the basis of the fact that he had the authority to command it, and he was delegating some of that authority to us as his representatives because he was returning to his father's uh, heavenly place, and, and he was going to sit on the throne to reign. So that should give us some boldness. We have authority. It gives us some confidence, not arrogance and pride. I'm not talking about that. But we have some confidence. I am in the place that I am because God has put me here. 
and he's given me a job to do. I'm going to do that job in the face of opposition, quite likely. That's okay. In The Lord of the Rings, Denethor, son of Ecthelion, I can't say that without hearing Gandalf's voice say it, but he was steward of Gondor. Right? Gondor was the, the city where the king ruled from, but the king had been gone for years and years, and a steward had been ruling in the king's stead for generations. Denethor, sadly, had forgotten his position. Instead of steward, he actually saw himself as the king, and his end was a tragic one. When the rightful king came, he wasn't willing to give up the throne. We also ought to heed Jesus' warning about forgetting ourselves and our responsibilities. The rightful king has the authority to judge our faithfulness. Now, the final verses of this chapter spell out a terrible end for the faithless one. It says this, But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master's delayed, and he begins to beat his fellow servants, and he eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and in an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces. Wow. And put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That phrase, weeping and gnashing of teeth, is a familiar one. We have heard that before. It shows up multiple times. In scripture, it's the same wording that's used to describe the final judgment for sinners. Now, we aren't talking here about a follower of Jesus who's not paying attention. We need to remember that we are children. Yes, we will be disciplined. But if we are genuinely saved, then we are children, and the Father will discipline us as a father who loves his son or his daughter. But once we are saved, genuinely saved, we do not risk being thrown into the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. That place is where sinners go for eternal judgment. So we're not talking about uh, a follower of Jesus. This is a person who has rejected Christ as king and has usurped that role for him or herself. Jesus is giving a stern warning here to all of us. The day is coming when the rightful king will return, will take up his mantle of authority, and will judge mankind. And not mankind in general or as a whole, but each of us, you and me, individually and specifically. It will be an individual thing. It will be a personal thing. And what will his evaluation be? Will he find you to be faithful or wicked? I suspect that most of us in this room are amongst those who are already saved. We don't face that judgment that I was just describing. But the reality is that if we are not carrying out the things that our king, our savior has called us to do, we will suffer shame at his return. I don't want that. I don't think you do either. Let's be found faithfully carrying out the roles that Jesus has given us to do while we wait for his soon return. What do we do with prophecy? What's the point of Jesus telling his disciples this. 
How should we apply the things that we have learned here? I'm going to wrap up with this. Number one, and this is important, don't waste time on speculation. I think probably the one thing that drives me mental is the number of people I have known over my lifetime who eagerly sit down and they want to quibble over every little detail and nuance in, in eschatological passages like this one and, and Revelation and Daniel. And do you think that the, you know, the, the locusts with the breastplates of steel, that that's like you know, military helicopters and that kind of thing? And they will spend hours, literally hours, discussing all of these nitpicky details. But they don't come to church on a regular basis. They don't give sacrificially. They don't speak to their neighbors uh, about the gospel and the wonders of belonging to Jesus Christ and being saved by him. They won't do the things that are clear in Scripture, but they want to nitpick over the things that are cloudy. That's not why Jesus gave us this. So let's not waste time on speculation, but let's look at the things that are clear, the things that are uh, laid out here. In verse 36, Jesus clearly states this, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. I have wrestled with that verse. I'm sure some of you have wrestled with it as well. Wait, I thought the Son was omniscient because he's God. And while that is true, there is also a sense in which in his humanity, he limited his divine attributes voluntarily. Even he didn't know the specific time of his second coming. His father would tell him that. I, I still struggle with that a little bit in terms of, I can't really say I fully understand that. I have to accept it. I don't necessarily fully understand it. Back in the 80s, there was a guy named Edgar Wisenant who wrote a booklet entitled 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Could Be in 1988. My family gathered for dinner, uh, Christmas dinner, in 1987, but it became a rather heated discussion around the table when my grandfather insisted that the Lord would return in 1988 because he had read that booklet. We almost had a fight over Christmas dinner because of that. Others in the family insisted that no one knows the day or the hour. Things were uncomfortable, to say the least. As it turned out, my grandfather did see the Lord in 1988. Uh, he died early in the morning on Christmas Day, 1988. People, if Jesus says he doesn't know the day or the hour, then for us to speculate is foolishness. Okay, so let's look at the positives then. Number two, live godly in the present. In the middle of Jesus' prophecy about future events stands this statement, see I have told you beforehand, verse 25. He's got a point. There's a purpose to what he's saying. Jesus tells his disciples, including us, these things so that we would not be deceived, following false messiahs or prophets, that we would not be captive to anxiety and depression because of what we see in the world around us, what we read in the papers and see on the internet. None of this, none of it catches God by surprise. He's seen it all coming, and it's all under his sovereign authority. What he wills to happen will happen. What he hasn't willed won't happen. 
We don't need to worry that some nuclear force in some third world country somewhere is going to blow us off the map. God is sovereign over all of it. We can rest in what we see in his word. Will we suffer persecution? Yes, it says that pretty clearly. Okay, so that's going to be another thing that we will take a look at in just a bit. Develop godly perseverance through wars, famines, earthquakes, and persecution. God wants us to be steadfast because that steadfastness will produce endurance. He wants to grow us stronger in our faith. He wants us not to falter in our love for him and for each other when wickedness surrounds us. And so when we know it's coming, we can say, oh yeah, this is exactly what Jesus said would happen. And that strengthens our faith in him. We want to remain steadfast in our testimony, both from our lips and our lives to the end. Michael Wilkins writes, Jesus' message in the Sermon on the Mount was that our personal righteousness would result from entering the kingdom of heaven. Now he is telling us about these future events so that we will discipline ourselves to maintain and expand that personal kingdom righteousness in our daily lives, regardless of the circumstances. Thirdly, grow in conviction about the future. While we should be willing to admit that we may be wrong on some points in our study of prophecy... We should also be diligently doing our homework. We study it here together. Go home and look at this again. Study it for yourselves. Once we've settled on what we believe to be the Bible's teachings, we should be developing conviction, yet with an openness to say, there may be things here that I have misinterpreted and that I can learn more about. As as your pastors, we are doing that. We are keeping that mindset. We're studying the scriptures Uh, deeply to make sure that we can understand it as best we know at this point, but also recognizing that God might show us something down the road that may change our perspective on this. There's an old saying, if you don't stand for something, you're likely to fall for anything. So without conviction, our emotions could be all over the map. Jesus warns us against being alarmed when international events seem to indicate that the world's going to fall apart. It's not. He's got this. Prepare for difficult times ahead. I'm not sure what that's going to mean for you. It may be stealing yourself inside your emotions and and such. Maybe you are going to make choices. I'm not saying go and build a bunker. That's not what I'm saying at all. But I am saying that maybe there are going to be things that would spark your thoughts about, hey, it's going to get difficult. There are some things I can do to mitigate some of that for my family, for my loved ones, right? Our sermon title is Be Ready. Jesus spent much of his time preparing the disciples in advance for the harsh realities of life in this age. He warns us of rejection as we go out to do missions. He warns us about imperfection in the Christian community and how we should respond. He repeatedly warns us of the hardships and trials that will come from following him. And here he warns us that some will try to deceive us and persecute us. Knowing this will help us not to be misled, not to become disheartened by the difficulties we will face. Engage in missions and evangelism. If we believe that this is true, then there should be an urgency about our desire to share the gospel with those who are lost and will be doomed for eternity if Jesus comes back today. 
And lastly, we need to prepare for impending judgment. That means us personally. And again, I know that I have mentioned that probably the majority of us in this room are prepared. It's not that we're coming to God and saying, I know I'm good enough, I'm going to be okay. What we're really saying is, I know I'm a disaster, but I also know that Jesus died for me. And I'm ready. I'm ready when Jesus comes back. There will be no fear on my part because my sin is taken care of by the blood of Jesus Christ himself. But maybe there's somebody here today who's not ready, who can't say that, who would be fearful when Jesus comes back as the conquering king. If that's you, if you haven't taken care of that yet, there's a free gift, a free offer of salvation that is available to you today. Don't waste that. Jesus returns today. Would you be ready? Turn to him now and ask him for salvation and forgiveness that only he can give. Tomorrow he could return and it would be too late. Don't let that happen. Be ready. Let's close in prayer. Father, words fail us to communicate our thankfulness to you for all that you have done, all that you have made possible in the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ, at the cross of Calvary for us. That he would go to that cross, that there he would bear the punishment for our sins, the punishment that we rightly deserved. You poured it out on him, and he suffered it all, and he died. And he was raised again the third day, which is the proof that you accepted the sacrifice that he gave on our behalf. And then you, you state this miraculous thing that you made him, the one who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We cling to that promise this morning. We rejoice in it that we are seen as the righteousness of God because of Jesus Christ. And we thank you and we praise you that he was willing to become sin for us so that this might be possible. Today as we go, Father, we pray that we would be found faithful, that we would be faithful servants of yours, dedicated to doing the things that you have called us to do in these last days. We believe that our Savior will return soon as the conquering King. And we look forward to that day. But while you choose to leave us here, Father, may we be found faithful. May we be ready for his coming. We ask it in your precious name. Amen.